It's Tuesday, May the 11th, and you're watching Goodfellows, a Hoover Institution broadcast examining social, economic, political, and geopolitical concerns in this time of pandemic. I'm Bill Whalen. I'm the Virginia Hobbs Carpenter Fellow in Journalism here at the Hoover Institution. I'll be your moderator today. That means I have the high honor and privilege of introducing three of my colleagues, all Hoover Institution senior fellows, who we jokingly refer to as the Goodfellows. We begin with John Cochran. He's an economist and the Hoover Institution's Rosemary and Jack Anderson Senior Fellow. Hello, John. Hi, everybody. Our second good fellow is Lieutenant General H.R. McMaster. General McMaster is a former presidential national security advisor. We're proud to have him here at the Hoover Institution as the Fawada Michelle Ajami Senior Fellow. Hello, H.R. Hi, Bill. Great to be with everybody. And our third good fellow, Neil Ferguson, the Hoover Institution's Milbank Family Senior Fellow. Neil is also a renowned historian and author. His latest book, Doom, the Politics of Catastrophe, came out last week. That was the topic of our show last week. Go back and watch it. Better yet, go buy the book and read about it. Hello, Neil. Hi, Bill. And, and I have a news flash. An even bigger event last week was that the Goodfellas got together and uh, in a non-socially distanced, mask-free way, we had dinner at my place. And there's photographic evidence to confirm this. So we are capable of being together in the same room at the same time. This Zoom thing will soon be but a bad memory of the past. So yeah, that's my breaking news. Goodfellas got together. Good headline, Zoom is doomed. So gentlemen, the topic this week is higher education. We thought this would be a timely conversation given the graduation season is upon us. Uh, schools such as Stanford, where the Hoover Institution is located, is coming to terms with what to do this fall. And we've seen universities struggle, not just with pandemic, but the greater question of the great awakening. So we have a guest today who knows a thing or two about what it is to run a great American university, and that is Mitch Daniels. Mitch Daniels is the 12th president of Purdue University, a post he's held since January of 2013. He came to West Lafayette, Indiana, after two terms as the 49th governor of the Hoosier State. Prior to that, he held leadership roles at Eli uh, Lilly and Company, the Hudson Institute, and for masochistic reasons only, he can explain the Federal Office of Management and Budget, meaning that it was his job to make sense of how Washington spends your tax dollars. President Daniels, welcome to Goodfellows. Appreciate being here. I, uh, it's... Um both uh, an honor and a little bit intimidating. Um, you know, um, this group asking me about the higher ed, uh, you know, what next week, I suppose, uh, Nick Faldo and uh, Jim Nance will ask me to comment on <laughs> golf, but uh, I'll do my best. Thank you very much. So uh, a thing or two I learned about Purdue in the course of getting ready for the show, President mm -hmm. Daniels, no tuition increases for over a decade now a civics literacy graduation requirement for undergraduates. You believe in intellectual diversity. Last month, uh, Hoover Shelby Steele spoke as part of the university's Pursuing Racial Justice Together initiative. You're the first uh, major US university to offer income share agreements uh, to incoming junior and senior level students, i.e. you're trying to help them pay down their, uh, get through college without incurring massive debts. You're an innovator in distance learning for adults. You dared to reopen your university last August. And for all this, a columnist called you, quote, the closest thing I know to an academic secular saint. So President Daniels, Governor Daniels, your holiness, if you will, <laughs> uh, at a time when universities have been disrupted, brought to a halt, brought to their knees by the likes of COVID and the woke culture, what does your school get that others don't? I don't think we're doing anything that, that wasn't part of our land grant heritage, isn't part of our, I suppose, to some extent, Midwestern uh, upbringing and culture. But uh, uh, I, I suppose we saw the obvious a few years before some in our sector, namely that uh, people were distressed and beginning to be severely pinched by the cost, the ever escalating cost of higher education. And finally, belatedly, 
asking the same question they ask uh, in every other realm of life, uh, is there value here? Uh, am, I, am I getting something uh, com uh, commensurate with the price I'm being asked to pay? And so uh, we've been working on both ends of that equation. We've invested heavily in quality. I wouldn't want that to be overlooked and continue to do that. But uh, the denominator, of course, is price. And we have uh, held that constant. In fact, uh, in nominal dollars, it's because of some fee reductions, it's actually less expensive to come here now than it was in, in 2012, again, in unadjusted dollars. I run into a lot of California students and, play, and students from other places who uh, tell me uh, it was less expensive to come here than to stay home. So cheaper to go to Purdue than to go to UC Berkeley or UC Santa Barbara. I don't want you to name names or throw other schools under the bus, though, but why do other universities seem just so paralyzed by what to do vis-a-vis -vis the pandemic, but also what to do vis-a-vis -vis free speech on their own campuses? That's a very long subject, and there's some very good uh, books uh, uh, you, you can all repair to if you really need to know more about this. I, I think that the uh, um, there are two separate but parallel phenomena here, I suppose, with regard to free speech and the um, sad uh, erosion of, uh, of diversity of thought on campus. Uh, in, in fact, the enforced conformity that seems to predominate a lot of places. This is simply the very natural consequence of multiple generations of people self-selecting, or I'm sorry, selecting uh, uh, as we're all prone to do, people like themselves. And um, in this case, with the additional built-in inertia of lifelong employment. And so uh, I think that explains the monolithic, uh, more than anything, the monolithic uh, uh, intellectual culture on too many places. And then with regard to the last year, um, I guess I'll just say that, uh, that a, a sector which has been so insulated, uh, so, uh, um, uh, really immune uh, to, uh, until recently, to market pressures, um, felt uh, in too many instances comfortable taking the route of maximum safety as they saw it. And, um, and uh, I, as, as we saw it, at least, uh, not paying enough attention to their real responsibility and raison d'etre. I can jump in. So the, that's, all these issues are interesting, and I think we'll get to all of them. But let, let's start with the freedom of speech, diversity of uh, intellectual approach. I don't want to call it opinion because we're supposed to be scholars, but a diversity of approaches issue. And, and I really want to get at how you're handling this, in part because you have to be part of a larger academic uh, culture. Let, let's just start from the basic one. You did this, I read up on your uh, your civics um, requirement, which I thought was brilliant. But if, if you hand the Stanford Political Science Department the charge of come up with a civics curriculum, they will edit, copy, edit, paste the New York Times 1619 project. And uh, <clears throat> what will come out will be quite different from, I think, what you intended. So how in the world did you get a sensible uh, uh, civics requirement to uh, be produced by a university? I think we specified, John, first of all, what we were and weren't interested in. Uh, and it's probably useful to tell you how we did it as well as what we did, as in many other cases here, including our original commitment to the free speech statement that we labeled the Chicago principles. We were the second school after uh, University of Chicago uh, uh, wrote those to uh, adopt them verbatim. Um, 
it was done by our board of trustees at this campus and in every other one I'm aware of under every set of bylaws I've ever seen, they have the ultimate authority. Many cases have abdicated or, or forfeited it to uh, um, administrators or faculty or both. But uh, in, in both the case of our original uh, free speech uh, uh, policy and the uh, civics requirement, the board of trustees took charge of this. Uh, we commissioned a group of, of uh, faculty here who had uh, uh, expressed an interest in this subject. It was really fairly broad-based here. And um, uh, there, uh, there were a few who disagreed, but the board has kept control of the process as uh, uh, announced that at its meeting now, uh, about three weeks off, we'll, uh, we'll uh, ratify and, and uh, uh, make it uh, a, a final uh, requirement here at the university. You know, I think that it will require continued vigilance. The point is, uh, we want the eventual exam, not an onerous exam, nor are the um, uh, pathways, the alternate pathways that a student can take to before uh, taking the exam, um, to be uh, factual, um, to deal with the um, rudiments of our constitutional and civic traditions, as we, but we've not had disagreement on that point. I think we tried to establish consensus that what we're out to do here is make certain our graduates understand the system we have. If they wanna go out and change it, that's entirely their right as citizens, but that's not the point, uh, urging any particular uh, differences from that system, not the point of this exercise or requirement. Oh, but but uh, there's different views about the nature of the system we have, as you know. But I, I think take your first answer as you have a well-chosen, engaged board of trustees that's doing their job and, and watching the hen house, which seems to be an important part of university governance. I absolutely believe that their word is law, and uh, uh, if if they'll uh, if they'll let it be, and so in a number of cases, I'll I'll give you another example. Um, you know, our board doesn't go looking for uh, disagreements or controversies, but uh, a few years ago, uh, after a very lengthy, typically lengthy, I guess I should say, uh, faculty process, uh, the Senate, as, as their group is called here, their representative group, came forward with a rewrite of our tenure and promotion policy. And uh, after, although it took them three years, it wasn't very different from what had been there before. But our board, um, I think to the surprise of many, rejected it, or I should say, sent it back for more work and insisted on three specific changes, um, which are now part of that policy. Uh, just to illustrate, probably the most important is every faculty member seeking promotion or tenure must demonstrate uh, along with their teaching and research that they have mentored students. They have invested some of their personal time in the development and growth of students. Uh, known to be one of the most important things that can happen in a student's life on a residential campus, we wanted to make certain it was happening here. So that was one requirement. And, uh, and uh, in addition to that, we now give credit or are supposed to for entrepreneurial activity once frowned upon and seen as a uh, at least a uh, non-contributing factor, maybe even a detriment to advancing professionally here. And uh, 
The last was the sponsorship of undergraduate research. Again, empirically something that we know is associated with a higher quality, more valuable undergraduate experience. So um, the idea of, the, of, of a board of trustees asserting control over that was uh, um, at least novel in modern times here, but uh, it uh, something I think was a, a valuable uh, in itself and, and as a uh, maybe a teaching moment about what governance really means. I actually had a question for President Daniels. Uh, Henry Kissinger famously said that, that academic politics was toxic because the stakes were so low and you're well positioned to uh, uh, judge whether that statement is true or false because you've now done your share of both kinds of, of politics. And I'm, I'm curious to look a little bit more closely at, at the campus politics you've experienced, because there are other actors that we haven't mentioned on most campuses that can sometimes play a disproportionate role in, in resisting change or advancing bad change. And I'm thinking here of uh, faculty administrators, uh, a, a very important uh, group of people, uh, which in some universities, Sam Abrams recently showed in an article uh, in the New York Times, uh, to the left, even of, of faculty. And then the radical uh, students, uh, graduates and undergraduates, who often, though a minority, can be very influential over the direction that campus politics uh, takes. So maybe give us a few insights into, into campus politics. I'm not asking you to give away any of the confidences and secrets that necessarily uh, you, you have. But I think I'd be interested to know how it looks to somebody who actually cut his teeth on real politics. Neil, it's, uh, everything you say is, is true. I will say that uh, here at Purdue, we have all these um, uh, issues or uh, the, uh, we have actors of the kind you're uh, describing. I, I think it's accurate to say that uh, each of these uh, phenomena is at a somewhat lower level here. And I attribute that to two things. One is our Midwestern upbringing. Only half our students and fewer than half our under, of our grad students are from Indiana, but uh, there's still a, a culture here that's I think a little more traditional than perhaps uh, uh, what uh, y'all are familiar with. Um, maybe uh, even more salient though, is the fact that uh, we are uh, much like Stanford now, uh, very heavily a, uh, a so-called STEM-based school. And although we're uh, bigger than we've ever been and about to welcome the biggest class in history, um, uh, we've been in very uh, purposely uh, investing in those disciplines, which we think are uh, most valuable, most needed in a knowledge economy. And by the way, right in the middle of our land-grant uh, uh, historical assignment, the mechanic arts, which today means engineering, computer science, mathematics, data science, all these, and the physical sciences, so forth. Um, so uh, something uh, over two thirds of our undergrads and a higher percentage of our grad students are in one of those areas. And I think that keeps things a little more rooted in the world of objective reality. And, um, and people are a little too busy uh, you know, uh, in, inventing the next breakthrough to uh, spend all their time thinking about politics. Um, you know, with regard to students, uh, but we use the word disproportionate. It's correct. You know, in my more flip moments, I'll sometimes say the three people in a cardboard sign, you know, the media will treat as 
like the storming of the Bastille or something, but the, uh, um, uh, we, we show, I, I hope, always proper respect. Uh, I think our, my shorthand for this is respect, not deference. Um, I've occasionally politely pointed out, you know, these young people, you're paying us a lot of money to come here because of what you don't know. And um, so we, uh, we want to listen and we hear, we get some good advice and we do act on it. There's, there's a, you know, generally more agreement about ends than some people want to admit. And usually more going on in terms of means than they're aware of. So we, uh, we, we, we certainly uh, don't uh, ever disregard and we do look for all the possible uh, common ground we can. But um, I'll, I'll just say that uh, I, I think we're fortunate to have a little less uh, difficulty than some. Going back to a previous matter that, uh, that John raised, I should say one other thing, and Shelby Steele's a good example, by the way. Um, we certainly um, have to live up to our uh, uh, free speech uh, pronouncements. And so we don't uh, try to dissuade people from inviting folks to campus, even those we think are, are peddling uh, um, nonsense. But uh, what we do insist on is people who are having speaker series, for example, um, uh, balance that and, and provide some uh, uh, counterpoint to uh, the, uh, the, the folks who are more typically invited. So I, I think that's been a pretty good formula and, and one that uh, people of, of all persuasions here seem to accept. Hey, Mitch, well, I'd like to ask you a question about, uh, uh, really a question that you've asked, you know, whether or not we can maintain our democracy. I, mean, I think you've made the point I've seen in several fora in which you say, hey, democracy is not natural, right? It's not the default form of governance. And, and what's important, I think, is an educated populace, maybe more than any other factor, as well as, as maybe pride, you know, pride in the, in the, in, in the fact, uh, the gift that we do have a say in how we're governed, uh, in the rights that we enjoy, in the liberty that we enjoy. And I just wondered if you could give your assessment at Purdue, but maybe more broadly in academia, what is the degree to which our humanities departments are, are educating citizens so they can be full participants in our democracy and strengthen our democratic form of governance. I'm reminded of what Richard Rorty said. He said, you know, that national pride is like self-respect in individuals, a, a, a necessary ingredient for self-improvement. And I do think that there are curricula in the humanities has been tainted by at least a, you know, a strain of what I would call almost self-loathing, uh, especially since the end of, of the Vietnam War, in which we tend to teach our students that that we are the problem, and and uh, and I think as a result, our pride in who we are uh, as, as a people and in our democratic principles, institutions, and processes is is diminished by sort of this orthodoxy of of self loathing. I mean, is that your assessment? And 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 do you how do you feel about our ability to make make progress and 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 reform? Uh, humanities curricula in a way that produces citizens that are capable of nurturing our republic. I don't know if the uh, it'll be beyond my uh, uh, powers, and probably um, I think most to reform the way humanities are taught, at least over uh, the uh, near term. Uh, whether uh, this does how much injury this does to our republic and to the all the uh, uh, necessary uh, support you just mentioned. Uh, uh, we'll have to see. Um, I'm obstinately 
um, optimistic because I don't know another operating principle that makes sense, but I'm more troubled than I've uh, been. And uh, they said I could ask questions in a minute. I'm going to ask you about West Point because I thought if there was anywhere with uh, where uh, uh, some of this would uh, be uh, would not intrude, it might be there. But I'm reading things that make me uh, worry about that too. But um, uh, let me just add one thing. There's nothing. Everything you just said is right. By the way, self-loathing by in, uh, of of their societies by intellectuals has a long tradition. I've read my Neil Ferguson and. Uh, by Paul Johnson and others, and that's in fact that's that's an apt description that's been around for decades. It's just I think more uh, it's it's uh, if anything stronger and more monolithic today. Now, especially the last few years, it is uh, fortified um, I, uh, to me by uh, the uh, uh, the uh, rather sudden um, control of information flow forget the academy for a minute, just what the average citizen, young or old, um, hears uh, and, and, and reads and, and what comes at them through the algorithms of you folks keep uh, you know, you, you devising out there for the rest of us. So, um, you know, that's a, that's a new problem that probably troubles me even more than, uh, than um, uh, what's been going on in higher ed, which is only worse by degree. So, so on either side of the college experience, there, there are new threats to me. The one I just mentioned, the, um, the uh, uh, dropping of any pretense of objectivity in, in journalism, the sort of propagandistic uh, uh, propensities that we now see. And on the other end, um, young people uh, coming out of K-12 having been uh, um, subjected to a degree of in too many cases, a degree of indoctrination there. You know, faculty here have told me it used to be that students would you know, show up uh, in, in college and you have to worry about someone trying to indoctrinate them to despise their own country. Now, sometimes they arrive here that, uh, having heard that at an even more impressionable age. And maybe you should ask that West Point question. We don't have to. Yeah, well, so Mitch, I, I, I am concerned about it. I should just say I'm, I'm on the board of visitors at West Point. So this is something that I'll be looking into. Of course, I trust the leadership there, uh, the superintendent. But I am worried about how the, these kind of reified philosophies are now uh, maybe infiltrating the, you know, the military where they can do the most damage, right? Because I think what happens is, is, is that these sort of ideas that, you know, that victimhood is the new heroism and that people ought to be judged, you know, mainly by their identity category rather than by their character or their courage or their toughness or, or, or their willingness to self-sacrifice, the principles that really we hold dear in our military and that are essential to combat effectiveness, uh, that, that would be a disaster uh, at West Point and, and in the military. And so you know, I think that we just have to ask questions of our of our young people as well to get them to to really actually be more critical about what they're hearing you know in secondary education in academia and we should ask people hey do you really think it makes sense uh, to, that we should judge people by their identity category rather than as 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 Dr. Martin Luther Luther King said you know by the content of, of their uh, of their character and I think, of course, the, the answer ought to be a resounding no. Do you think our differences, right, our differences based on superficial differences, like like skin color, for example, uh, are, are more important than our common humanity, right? And so I I just think that that just by questioning, you know, these 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 philosophies, these orthodoxies, uh, maybe we can help inspire 
a degree of skepticism in the younger generation. And that's, that's where I have maybe more hope than maybe reform of academic departments, for example. And, and Mitch, I'd, I wonder, what is your sense of the, of the student body, you know, the younger generation that you interact with every day? You know, whenever I interact with young people here at, uh, at, at Stanford in the courses that I teach and with my research assistants, those who I just interact broadly on campus, I, I'm, I come away from all those engagements encouraged, right? And, and so I, I wonder what your sense is of the younger generation and, and do you share my hope that that positive change you know, could come from them as they reject these orthodoxies? Yes, I do. Um, we had a, we just had an extraordinarily positive, no surprise to me, but it was uh, good to see it, um, I'll say battle-tested experience here this last year. I've got a, we kept Purdue open. We're probably, we were probably more open, that is to say, uh, residential for almost, for everyone who wanted to be here, which was almost everyone who could get here, uh, over 90%. And uh, in-person classes uh, uh, in the in the majority of cases and so forth, we did uh, everything we could think of as an institution to make that possible. But the sine qua non was the uh, conduct of our of our students. Uh, they were they they confounded all the skeptics. I got a very thick file of uh, clippings and columns and and some very hostile letters uh, asserting that you know these young people would. Um, would uh, uh, flaunt any uh, uh, rule or uh, or uh, behavior we ask them to to adopt that they would uh, uh, you know cook uh, uh, up and and drink up and otherwise defeat any uh, preventive measures that we took. None of that was true, and uh, uh, and better better than that, uh, they knew they were plenty smart enough to know that they were at essentially zero risk from this, uh, serious risk from this virus. They did what they did for others to protect the vulnerable, their elders, their faculty, and protect the institution so it could stay open. So I thought it was a very, um, no, again, no surprise, but a very, very encouraging demonstration. The other thing I'll say is that one thing that's been reasonably common among young people over time is um, a, a, uh, a little a rebellious streak against the, when they're being uh, uh, pressured or, or fed something, and maybe it'll assert itself here. Um, although I got to say that the process of, um, of pressing certain views on them um, as though they were gospel, and I use that term uh, advisedly, um, is, uh, is something we probably, uh, we haven't seen in this society at least um, before. So that does, um, you, you have some advantages here. Um, I was just talking to a University of Chicago professor who said that uh, one of the great advantages of uh, subscribing to the Chicago principles was it selects undergraduates who want to go there for free speech. And so uh, by announcing that sort of thing, by, by being a beacon, you bring people who want to go there. But I want to go back to how you're doing it, which is I'm still scratching my head. <laughs> uh, let's take the faculty uh, question for the moment. Um, yeah, you did say we're going to STEM, but STEM isn't immune. But in many fields, there's just a monoculture. Um, I don't know how you hire a conservative historian. Neil's here, but he's not available. Um, <laughs> well, not, 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 uh, not so uh, fast, John. You know, I was going to tell you uh, all. I mean, I, I try to track uh, how uh, Hoover's being treated out there. And I just I just want to let you all know we have a very generous asylum policy here for <laughs> those who are politically persecuted elsewhere. Uh, it's a very expeditious process. We can take you in in very short order. 
Well, do you? So does your, you know, faculty hiring is not something a president can do. Uh, and it's, I don't know how you even find conservative historians who've made it through the process anymore. Uh, how do you get a faculty to be open to intellectual ideological diversity, which in professions where there's practically none of it left? I have no magic answer except to say that even those who um, do see the world uh, in a very different way, uh, do uh, subscribe to the uh, what I, I think you can correctly call the orthodoxy that, that prevails here, um, still will not, in most cases, disagree that, that uh, diversity of thought is an important value. They, um, and, uh, you know, I think the most telling argument, and I've now had to answer questions about this and give speeches and so forth many, many times. There, um, you know, I think the most, um, at least in the higher ed context, the most um, useful argument to be made is uh, the one that uh, Professor Whittington out of Princeton made in his recent book. It's a fairly obvious one, but not always invoked. And that is that in addition to its to matters of justice and constitutionality and all of that, um, uh, conformity of thought is uh, is a direct assault on the very mission of higher education, the advance of knowledge. Knowledge only pro progresses through the collision of ideas, and today's heretic is tomorrow's, um, you know, accepted wisdom and so forth. And um, you know, I, I think we've tried to keep that in front of people here too. And even though they, uh, you know, we all struggle to live up to our principles and we all time to time depart from them. And even those who do, I think, um, know that that's, that, that these are valid arguments and, um, and uh, don't, don't challenge them frontally. It strikes me you have a tremendous opportunity. Um, you know, the University of Chicago got great uh, because in the 1930s it hired Jews when Harvard would not hire Jews. Uh, if you're willing to hire people of slightly unorthodox political opinions, it strikes me Purdue could strike out and, and get a, a generation of spectacularly good faculty in an otherwise very competitive market and great students uh, who might not otherwise come to Purdue. If you can say, this is the place where we, we tolerate uh, different ideas. And in fact, you'll be exposed to different ideas. Uh, that, that seems like a tremendous opportunity. Is that, is that part of your strategy here? I don't know strategy, but uh, I think it's uh, it's um, yeah, something we're seeing play out on the student end. I can tell you, we don't we don't uh, 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 tout this or uh, uh, emphasize it. I've been tempted to from time to time, sort of counter programming of the kind of the way you're in the way you're describing. But uh, without doing that, uh, every year in the entering class, there are students, uh, I have to say, a lot of them come from the coast where you live, but elsewhere too, that, uh, and, and or I'll hear from parents who, who detected something more balanced about this place. In addition to, I hope, other virtues of value and affordability that we talked about. So I don't have any question that it is operating somewhat in our favor now. And, and next we make, we may, we may find out something about your, the first end of your question because, I mean, the, the, the issue I'm wrestling, we're wrestling with here this week is um, uh, we are growing again. Uh, higher ed's been shrinking 2% a year now for a decade, probably gonna shrink at faster rates now for reasons both demographic and economic. 
And um, but that's not our experience. And now we're going to have to hire even more faculty than the roughly 30 that were in our plan for this year. And me and, uh, you know, I keep saying to our provosts and others, this ought to be the best buyer's market we've seen in a while. There's probably going to be some folks on the market or at least open to it, um, to, a, to a move uh, uh, because their uh, own institutions aren't faring so well. So we'll, we'll see. But you, as you said earlier, you know, people in my job don't hire faculty directly, but I shouldn't. And um, so uh, you, you have to just set, try to set a tone and, uh, and try to get people to um, uh, sign on to basic principles that could lead to that outcome. My observation, and it's based on some research, recent research as well as my own observation, is that in many ways the problem does not lie with undergraduates, and it doesn't even necessarily lie uh, uh, with with faculty. Uh, the, the problem is with uh, people who are relatively junior but pursuing academic careers. Now, a recent report that came out from Eric Kaufman, who's London-based, but the, the report surveyed uh, institutions in the US, uh, Canada, and the UK, had a, a really shocking statistic uh, it, it asked uh, if uh, people in the survey uh, would uh, vote to oust a dissenting academic, if an academic held uh, views on a range of issues from diversity to traditional parenthood to empire. Uh, and amongst the PhDs in the US and Canadian institutions, 49% of those surveyed said they would support one or other uh, of these campaigns to oust a dissenting, that is to say, right-leaning academic, 49%, much, much higher than for the established faculty. And this re reminded me of an observation one of my old Harvard colleagues made uh, the other day, that the problems, the graduate students, the, the problem is that the people who have self-selected to pursue academic careers for a variety of reasons that have to do with the way you get a, an academic job, a highly conformist and, and highly committed to work ideology. So when a university sets out to hire uh, and bring in a new junior faculty, from the point of view of intellectual diversity, the pool, certainly in social sciences and humanities, the pool is already enormously skewed to the left. And it's a very illiberal left that we're talking about now because this readiness to, to essentially campaign to have a colleague fired for dissenting political views uh, is no longer regarded as taboo. Overt political discrimination, as Eric Kaufman's report makes clear, is absolutely all right, especially in the eyes of, of junior people in the system. So I wonder if you have any thoughts on that. And I have a second question, which has to do with why relatively few other academic institutions have followed your example in signing up for the Chicago principles. I don't actually have a score at the moment of how many it 80. is. It's not as bad as you think, there's 80. Well, tell me something a bit about why it's not everybody. Because <laughs> you'd have thought you'd have thought that this was a no-brainer. I mean, who who's a, who could be against the fundamental notion that a campus should be a place where there's free thought and, well, and we're, free we're trying to get that to happen at Stanford and, and we'll have uh, and another good fellow as we can discuss uh, <laughs> just how that's going. <laughs> Yet that was one reason maybe why it crossed my mind as a question. But maybe start with the problem of, of just 
are recruiting people into academia? Because right now I get the sense that that relatively few people right of center uh, are considering this as an option, and and one can't really blame them because it seems like a sort of hopeless task. Or, or Neil, they, they leave. I mean, I I know people at the PhD student who, who come in and they're all excited about it, and then they see a job market that, except for Purdue and Hoover, uh, requires uh, you know uh, daily genuflecting at woke altars, and say, "Oh, what the heck? I'm going to go get a real job." It depends on the discipline, of course. Um, you know, our, our PhD students in, in the main are not headed for careers in academe. Um, they're being snapped up by uh, uh, top companies and, and the research organizations and so forth. So setting those aside, everything you say, I can't uh, disagree with. It's, it's manifestly so. Um, I'm tempted to suggest that in the current situation, they might be happy to evict somebody. So there's a spot for them. You know, the real issue, if you're a, 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 a PhD candidate right now is where are you planning to go? Um, even a few years ago, I first meeting I attended uh, of uh, the uh, research university uh, organization, the topic on the table was they talked about the LaGuardia effect, you know, too many uh, people circling too few landing spots. And it's gotten much worse since with the uh, with the uh, contraction or the flattening, at least, of college-going uh, populations and so forth. So, I mean, uh, your chances as one of those PhD candidates that you just talked about of, uh, of being hooded and then moving into an academic job in some college or university are astonishingly small now. I don't know where they're going, honestly, but um, uh, that... Uh, yeah, I don't know. Maybe take some. We can take some comfort from some of that. Um, on the on the on the Chicago principles, um, uh, you know, I, I don't like doing this, but I think I can actually claim a little um, paternity for the term because uh, we we were early, and I won't, it just seemed to me so obvious that instead of trying to draft our own, here's this perfectly, you know, clear and good statement. By the way. You probably know, but it, the committee that wrote it at Chicago was led by um, uh, Professor Stone, and uh, who is a '60s uh, liberal. You know, he's uh, you know a very senior, distinguished uh, constitutional law professor there, and um, but you know he understood free speech. He grew up uh, promoting free speech so that the left would not be. Um, regimented off of campus or punished in some way or limited in their in their speech. He's always understood the value of dissent from that perspective and found himself in strange company when, you know, in, in the current situation when those of who are embracing those principles more often are worried about the, the opposite problem. I had the same experience with a, someone who became a good friend, Nadine Strassen, who was the longtime leader of the American Civil Liberties Union which no longer seems quite as interested in civil liberties. That's a different podcast too. Um, but that both of them had been uh, sort of uh, reality mugged um, by this this new situation in which the um, in in which it seemed in, in which their allies in trying to defend these longtime principles, uh, you know, were uh, not the, were the people they once once contended with. No, I thought that the the virtue of us all signing one thing. I always thought about the Sullivan principles on apartheid. They had more power because 
every company didn't try to write its own version. Everybody just signed up to one, then everyone understood it. Uh, and, and, um, and I still hope something like that is happening here. I do think the worm has turned in a very small way. We've had fewer people, even before the pandemic, somewhat fewer incidents of disinvitations, speakers shouted down or physically harassed. I think there'd been a little embarrassment uh, from the excesses there, at least I hope so. And I agree, by the way, one of the, the odd couples in this space is uh, Robbie George and, and Cornell West. And this is a, an opportunity for me to plug the Academic Freedom Alliance, uh, which uh, which Robbie George and others have got off the ground. And, and my sole claim to fame really is that I had the idea of, of NATO for professors with an article five stating that an attack on one yeah. is an attack on all. And this was a newspaper column. Uh, Robbie George said, are you gonna do this? And I said, I'm not sure I got time to do this. He said, well, I'm gonna do it. So the Academic Freedom Alliance now exists and uh, you should be encouraging your, your faculty to join them. Yeah, uh, I will. Hey, I was just going to ask you, uh, President Daniels, what other ideas you have about, about bringing our, our society back together, right? I mean, strengthening the fabric of our society, reversing this severe polarization. We've talked about some of the causes. Some of the causes is maybe this this orthodoxy of, of, of self-loathing and and uh, and and uh, and 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 uh, victimization is the new or, or victimhood is as the new heroism and so forth. These reified theories and compounded by social media, the, the, the information environment broadly to which our, our, our citizens are subjected. But what, what other opportunities do you see to, to maybe reverse this polarization, to restore our confidence in, in who we are as, as a nation? I mean, are there, are there opportunities for, for public service, for example, that, 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 uh, and, and serving fellow citizens uh, that can provide an opportunity, I think, for people to work uh, together from diverse backgrounds and and to and to 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 really see the you know the conventional wisdom you know, that they've been or the or the or the uh, you know the theories that have been foisted upon them melt away and 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 expose for what they are. Uh, what what else are you doing on campus and and what other ideas do you have to to help bring us back together? General, I wish I had had that answer. Um, I, uh, I I hope so, and I and I hope with eventually some. Uh, I hope it's something other than a cataclysm. Uh, I mean, um, it, it might actually take the uh, either a, 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 a common threat uh, or a, a, a common danger, uh, or it might uh, take the uh, uh, demonstrated failure of, of the at least currently uh, dominant um, uh, set of policies and, and values uh, to, to bring about, to, to bring uh, out of hiding, if that's where they are, this so-called exhausted middle that we were talking about not too long ago, but to me has been harder to find lately as the tribes have become a little more rigid, it seems. You know, I, um, in days of yore, which means eight years ago, I, I had a tour in elective office. Uh, it was not uh, federal office, and that's significant because it meant that you, you were dealing with more practical problems if, if one chose to, and, and uh, much less often dragged into these, you know, yes, no binary uh, uh, cultural fights. And, uh, uh, but so, for somebody uh, just did a program and 
brought some of that back to mind. I realized, boy, how dated that seems. I just don't know if that sort of of um, of, of appeal can work anymore. Work just great here, right up until um, I changed jobs, but. Uh, uh, we've seen a lot of shift in the last few years, and the idea of of talking about politics by addition, not division, uh, of uh, de-emphasizing labels of either party or ideology, and in, in favor of you know the search for um, for uh, a compromise and 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 common a purpose and common uh, uh, actions. Um, I, I'd love to think that there's some uh, something like that can work at the national level, but right now it seems uh, uh, it seems that seems remote. Can't help interjecting that if somebody were to write a book about cataclysms, they'd be be likely to observe that that we just had quite a big one. Certainly, I think we'd all agree that more than half a million excess dead in the U.S. is is pretty cataclysmic by historic standards, and it didn't bring us together. Quite quite the opposite. It, it, to me, it's actually quite surprising how far we became more polarized over the past year and everything became partisan. I've been thinking a lot about that this week, talking about, about the book Doom. It's not kind of something you necessarily would have anticipated beforehand if you told somebody, well, what happens to American sentiment if there's a huge pandemic? I, a lot of us would have said, well, if there's some new virus that comes from China, I, I, I would guess that would reduce partisan division, but it didn't. I think we come together if we see our government as being competent in its response and then everyone chips in. But the minute you see it being completely incompetent in its response, then you go back to fighting among each other. Okay, can I ask Mitch one last question? Um, so I, 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 um, HR wants to save the world. I wanna be a university administrator. So just a couple of university related to university administrator questions. Um, a lot of our problems are not external speakers, they're, they're classroom self-censorship. And even Chicago's having problems that uh, the staff doesn't really, uh, you know, the principals are nice on top, but they don't get implemented. Uh, people get in trouble for little things they say in class. Similarly, uh, one thing that's been on my mind is if we care about viewpoint diversity, we should try to measure it. Our universities are very good at measuring all sorts of uh, racial and social um, uh, and, and other kinds of self-identifications. And I tried to ask our provost, why don't we, if you care about viewpoint diversity, just make who's a registered Republican? Are there any brown? Who, who goes to church regularly? What are your self-identified political things? It seems like something one could measure. I'm curious if you went there. And, and last one, because choose whichever of these you think is interesting. Uh, admissions seems like a, a great place for a university to go against. The, 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 new, the new thing is no grades, no test scores. Um, we, we can't do that sort of stuff. It strikes me a university who says, yeah, if, if you're a kid who can pass it, if you're an Asian kid who can get a good test score, we'll let you in and overlook everything else would be a great way to let underlooked people in and also to get a, great, a spectacular student body. So, so those are three sort of ways in which your university administrator could be, or maybe you have thoughts on how you are uh, uh, fighting uh, fighting these uh, trends. Well, I'll deal with the last one uh, first. Uh, we uh, we still, uh, as soon as we can, uh, uh, we'll be requiring tests as we have. That's for the most uh, uh, you know empirical of reasons. Um, our folks have analyzed this. It's been analyzed by all kinds of people. There is no combination of criteria. Uh, anyone has discovered or devised that omits standardized tests from its top two or three or four uh, uh, factors in decision. 
um, that is uh, as predictive of the eventual student success. And that, and that the eventual student success is what we're after. Well, let me just interrupt so, because the tests were put in originally to allow uh, people who were kind of from nowhere, kind of didn't know anybody, kind of had a bad right. background to prove that they were good. So it's an tests are an inclusive thing, not an exclusive. That's right. They were devised by a, by a, a Jewish uh, person in the late 30s when Jews were being excluded by quota and so forth in, in just the way that it appears in some places, uh, maybe uh, Asian American students are, are today. So um, uh, we uh, encouraged a test this, this last year. Many, you know, many students couldn't get to a testing center and there was that. So you had to have a lot of flexibility and we did. But uh, we, we intend to stay with it. Um, you know, it, it, it does no good, we believe, uh, to admit students uh, who can't meet our standards. Now, there's two ways you can deal with it. You can, you can relax the rigor, which we have tried to preserve. There's a statistical, it's statistically harder to get a good grade here than at most other schools. And I hope we'll preserve that delta. It tells the world that if you leave with a Purdue degree, you probably learned something. Uh, it's not just a proxy for the fact you had enough smarts to get in, in the first place. And uh, um, so uh, for that reason, um, I, uh, I expect uh, testing to be, to remain a part of our, um, uh, of, of our, you know, uh, process, which of course looks at, at, at many other factors, but is, is aimed at assembling a class of students who, if they'll work hard, uh, can, can succeed in a, in a fairly uh, rigorous environment. So President Daniels, we have just a couple minutes left on this show and I'd like to give you the last word. Goodfellows is forward looking at all times and I constantly drive these three gentlemen crazy by asking them, okay, what's next? So let me pose this question to you and then let's sign off. Um, the next pandemic, the next time universities face this situation, what do university presidents, what to faculty, what do parents, what are prospective students, what do, they need, what do they need to be thinking about? Because as Neil will tell you, it's not a matter of when, you know, if, but when we once again go through the experience. So what do we do the next time? Yeah, well, there's a there's a typically cheery thought from Dr. Ferguson, uh, <laughs> but he's probably right as he, as he almost always is. Um, well, look, I, my own view is that uh, the, the, the historians of the not too distant future will look back with fairly harshly on the way people in positions of, of responsibility handled themselves this last year. As I've said over and over, uh, in any position of, of, of significant responsibility, the, the whole essence, you could say, of the, of the assignment is the balancing of competing interests and the choice of own priorities. And, and the, uh, the trade-offs uh, that uh, are inevitable in, in, a, uh, in any endeavor of, of any size or complexity. And uh, you know what we saw over and over again this last year were people in, uh, um, uh, taking a, a very uh, tunnel vision view, on, in too many cases, playing to a gallery that was happy to applaud them for that. Um, and, uh, in the process, inflicting enormous collateral damage, economic damage, uh, health, other health consequences, the education, especially of younger children, disadvantaged children, we, you know all this. And I think that when that score is toted up fairly as eventually it will be, I hope there's an object lesson there for people who have to face the next pandemic. Uh, and um, uh, I think that process may have already have started I just want to add one quick thing because I did. It was a piece of John's last question I didn't answer. That, that something that may interest you. Uh, I 
that there was a bill in the Indiana General Assembly this last year that aimed to get at some of this. And, and it, in its original form, it suggested that we ought to go around and put some sort of a designation on our faculty, how many of this, how many of that. Uh, I really thought that was not a good or useful idea. I wouldn't know how to do it. I thought it was invasive. I thought it would spur a lot of nat you know, natural resentment. However, um, a, 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 I think a better alternative came up and that is a survey of students on, in the public universities of this state, which is supposed to take place later this year. I hope it'll be simple, plain, uh, unambiguous. Uh, you know, questions like, do you feel free to speak up in class? Have you ever felt you were being uh, preached to as opposed to taught how to think for yourself? Um, have you, uh, or do you worry about retaliation if you uh, were to express a, a either, from, either from faculty or from uh, fellow students? Uh, if you did express a viewpoint that was um, unpopular un, uh, or different, those kind of questions. So I don't know where it will wind up, but I think that could be a very useful enterprise uh, or, or undertaking. And, uh, you know, we will certainly cooperate fully with it when the thing is put together. Uh, I think there have been some data about this around the country. We, they're not surprising and it's showing how many young people you know, I hate to raise a generation of cynics. You know, the, you know, the Soviets raised several of them who, uh, you know, had to lie to get by and uh, all those sorts of things. And, uh, you know, we're not there, but I, I don't want to get close to there. And perhaps a little sunshine on this subject could help. And uh, if the experience here is a useful one, maybe it'll be emulated, which is one thing our federal system still does very well. President Daniels, we enjoyed the conversation. If you want to get any or all these gentlemen to work for you, very simple. Send them an email with real estate prices in West Lafayette, Indiana. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Problem oh, yeah. solved. So that's it for this episode of Goodfellas. We hope you enjoyed the conversation. We'll be back next week with a new topic, a new conversation for you. Uh, if you want to know more about Purdue University, that fine school uh, whose name you see on the back of President Daniels, who not coincidentally is wearing a black sweater and gold shirt, uh, army colors, right, HR? Uh, very simple. Go to the website, www.purdue.edu. Mitch Daniels also is fearless. He is on Twitter. His Twitter handle is at Purdue Mitch, uh, P-U-R-D-U-E-M-I-T-C-H at Purdue Mitch. On behalf of Hoover's Goodfellows, Neil Ferguson, H.R. McMaster, John Cochran, our special guest today, Purdue University President Mitch Daniels. We wish you and yours the very best. Stay safe, stay healthy, we'll do our best here at the Hoover Institution to help you stay informed. We'll see you next week. Go Boilermakers. If you enjoyed this show and are interested in listening to more content featuring H.R. McMaster, subscribe to Battlegrounds, also available at hoover.org slash battlegrounds.